Welcome to Foves Are the Best People. In this episode, we delve into the history of the band, their debut gig, and their first tentative steps into performing live. The story of the Foves begins on the Mornington Peninsula, an hour drive southeast of the Melbourne GPO. It concerns four young men Andrew Ian Cox, Philip Daniel Leonard, Adam Douglas Newey, and Andrew Jack Dyer. A fifth boy, coincidentally from the same part of the country, Ted or Terry Cleaver will join the band in the next millennium. We should start with Andrew Cox, guitarist and main singer, the glue that holds the band together and the most prolific songwriter. Andrew Cox was born in the late 1960s in the Melbourne suburb of Caulfield, in a hospital that now specialises in palliative care. Withhold joke about the aptness of its current function, given the stagnant career of one of its born sons. The eldest of four siblings, he initially went to primary school in Moorabbin, before the family moved further down the peninsula to Mount Eliza, where he went to high school. By all accounts, it was a classic suburban upbringing. The adolescent began to fumble around with guitar in his mid-teens, though his first instrument was a bass guitar, bought for $90 at Guitar Village. Jack Dyer, the band's first bass player, recounts first meeting Coxie in primary school, but becoming closer friends in the middle school years, bonding over guitars. Well, uh, well, Cox and I, we go, we go way, way back. Um, I think the first first time we we probably met, and Coxie's got a brilliant memory for these sort of things, but um, would have been uh, probably primary school days uh, when he yeah. was at, he was at Darinia, I was at um, Mount Eliza, and um, but we had a mutual friend, uh, and he was my backdoor neighbour. So we used to, uh, we played a lot of, um, you know, backyard cricket uh, on his on my, my mate's uh, tennis court there. So I think my, my, probably my first recollection of memories of Andy was, um, would have been then first. Uh, and then once we went through primary school and we you know, went to high school, um, it was probably around, I don't think it was year nine, it was probably year ten, I think. I'm showing my age, so whatever that year level is now, I don't know. <laughs> Um, yeah, we became um, best mates, um, and that's probably yeah. We, I mean, he was um, uh, well, still is, I'm sure, uh, a massive intellectual. So um, <laughs> he, he was, and I was just yeah, pretty much your, your average. As the guys in the band used to call me, the, the suburban connection. Um, so it was a good combination. So you know, he helped he'd help me a lot with my studies. So basically, I just copy copy him. And um, 
And at lunch times and every spare moment we got, we used to just um, go to the music room and, and get the guitars out and just make noise. <laughs> um, both of us you know, weren't were, were particularly, well, we weren't musicians. Um, we were still learning our way. We were sort of basically um, very much you know, Neil Young and Bob Dylan fans and uh, Pink Floyd. Um, and we used to you know, try and um, somehow copy some sort of melody that remotely you know, was similar to those, those bands and those songs. Um, but, yeah, we loved it. I mean, we sort of lived... That was our favourite part of the day was uh, when we could just muck about with, with guitars. Ironically, the first instrument Jack owned was a guitar and the first instrument Coxie owned was a bass. The model was an Anson, an Australian brand made in Japan. Yeah, that is true. You're trying to yeah, you could have gone to Peter Cleaver <laughs> Music. Is that just a bit of happenstance at Ted's Ted's dad? That, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, Peter Cleaver Music was always more of a. I always saw it as more of a sheet music type place. Okay, yeah. And I'm pretty sure I may have bought a bit of sheet music from Peter Cleaver's music um, back in the day because there was a period where I was trying to learn the clarinet. <laughs> would it help with it? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so yeah, but no, I, and I still have the, that bass guitar. And um, it was only written, wasn't that long ago, because it's got an indecipherable logo on the headstock, and we actually worked out what the brand name was. Remember one day at practice at Dunn's? Yeah, what was it? And I forgot it again, but it's an Australian brand. There was Googling, and there was like one entry on all the whole yeah. internet for this, and now I've forgotten it, which is a bit of unfortunate, but... Um, but yeah, still still got the bass. I still use it on, on all my demos, so uh-huh. yeah, mm-hmm. it comes in very handy. The solo album we haven't heard of yet? I didn't use it on that because no. the intonation's completely out on the bass, so okay. yeah. Coxie later remembers picking up his brother's discarded Spanish nylon guitar. Jack recalls Coxie in his early years of high school and tries to situate them both in the social milieu. Said Coxie was the great intellectual. How did that go down with his sport? Like, did he get bagged out a bit for that for being a, a smarty and a, and a sporty type? Oh no, no, because he was um, he was very athletic. Uh, you know, I mean, he was a very good. Oh gee, again, I seem to recall that he was a very good uh, cross country runner or runner. Um, or he did athletics or something. You know, sort of uh, early days on, but then. You know, played footy and played played cricket uh, from an early age, which I ne- I didn't play. I didn't start playing cricket. You know, well, it actually wasn't for um, for, wasn't for for Andy and Phil for that matter. Um, convincing me to come down. You know, once once I turned eighteen, um, you know, my parent, my mother, no longer had any control over me because she only ever wanted me to play tennis. Um, so for all these years, I was playing tennis, and and you know, I mean. I got quite good at it, but she wouldn't let me play footy or cricket because she was worried that I'd get my teeth knocked out and she's worried about my teeth. <laughs> Coxie and Jack would prove the first nucleus of the group. I was best friend mates with Jack before I even knew the other two guys. So, you know, we went back a really long way and my connection with Jack was, you know, probably more profound than the other guys had with him, although they... They were super close with him as well. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, Jack and I were 
sort of different, but we also share a huge history. So a very sort of intimate bond in that way that I had a probably more intimate connection with Jack, yeah, that, than, than the other two. But, but yeah, we were kind of different people, but different people who were, um, you know, that doesn't preclude you from being, you know, really close to someone. So we were mates all through high school. Um, and Phil didn't come to Mount Eliza High till I think year nine. So yeah, so that sort of predated, you know, my my friend other two friendships with Adam and Phil. As both Coxie and Jack approached the end of high school in the mid nineteen eighties, Australian rules football and cricket continued to bind the two together. Jack, however, describes Coxie as being a little bit different. To the others around him. I started playing cricket with him. He was just always this sort of slightly unco um, sort of athlete that, but he put the unco on. You know, he didn't. He didn't. He was completely against being you know any sort of um, you know stereotypical you know, jock of any, of any way, shape, <laughs> or form. So he'd. He'd go the opposite, you know. He deliberately he just he dressed you know, lankily and everything else. So yeah, but Cox and I had sort of like we'd always right through high school. So we, we're going to start a band. We're going to start a band, and Andy started writing a lot of lyrics. And um, we went. I remember he had a little four track uh, recorder uh, that he, he'd set up in his room. We'd go around there and. You know, we'd muck about with, with making different noises and so on, and, and he'd sing these lyrics to them terribly. Um, but we'd put a four-track together, and he had his little Casio, little drum machine, you know, his old keyboards. Yeah. And um, so he, and he became quite a whiz at it. He was quite, got quite technical with it, and he was able to sort of do these little mixes. This slightly unco-athlete was becoming a fast fan of classic 60s artists, Bob Dylan, Neil Young and Pink Floyd. The two fantasised about creating music together. Coxie's first forays into a group, ironically, were not with Jack, but with yet another friend called Andrew. Initially called Horizon, they changed their name to Taylor Maid. Maid spelt M-A-I-D. Coxie remembers being a junior member and how he came to a premature exit. With my friend, high school friends Andrew Kirkland and Tim Benetton. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I was playing bass in that band, but I got kicked. Well, I didn't get kicked out in the sense that they sat me down and kicked me out, but they just continued rehearsing without inviting me so um, yeah did you bring any songs to that outfit that you later used for the folks no it was all very much Kirky stuff yeah um who, a good if, learning experience for yeah you. yeah good learning mm. experience and um he he suddenly he subsequently went on to form a band called lynchpin with the son of um uh, an illegitimate son of bon scott oh, wow. who owns um mm. or did own uh yeah. What's the record store in St Kilda? Yeah, Pure Pop? Yes. Around this time, Jack began to gravitate towards the bass guitar after receiving a gift from a friend. 
though he wouldn't be down-tuning his guitar just yet. It would have been year nine. <laughs> um, again, we have to work out the years, what year that was, so it would have been 84 yeah, or so. 83 or something? Yeah, 83. <laughs> My uh, a good mate was a, a musician named Robbie McVean, um, and to this day, he's still he's a brilliant musician, but he's um, he's a, a busker and he's a different different person. But he played in this band, and, and I he got me to be the photographer for this band. And I had this little crappy little camera, and he'd do these gigs. You know, they were just covers. He, he was a massive Stones fan. Mm-hmm. Anyway, cut a long story short, he gave me a bass guitar. Um, it was a it was a Court a C O R T. Um, it was yellow and black, and I just sort of think this thing was a duck's nuts. Um, couldn't comply for shit, but I had a bass. But you know, I was more intimate into the guitar at that point, and you know, I was given a 12-string you know, and all sort of stuff. So, uh, When did you write the song Devil on Your Shoulder, telling oh. me what to do? Was that later on? Where <laughs> <laughs> are you getting all this from? <laughs> yeah. Gee, that oh, no, I think that would have been around. I don't even remember the tune. Yeah, um, it's, it's still coming <laughs> I was back to ask the... you to play it. No, I was asking. Um, I was asking. You know, I always like to know if the rhythm section likes to write songs. And I said, Doug, did you write a song? And he said, Yeah, stack of boogies or something. Which I don't think I've never heard. Never been released. Oh, so Doug, Dougie told you this, right? Okay, yeah. So yeah, there was um, yeah. Cold Bitch, um, Devil on My Shoulder, Fade Behind the Green. I did a few, and some of them were, were recorded. I you know, would have written Devil on My Shoulder. <laughs> so written. <laughs> um, uh-huh. It would have been probably a six or seven, something like that. You reach out for Secondary school, and adolescence more generally, can be a trying experience for anyone, regardless of the time period or geographic setting. Jack adamantly believes neither he nor Coxie were overtly popular. Doctor said that you and um, you and Andy were the only non-nerds in your year level. Take that as you will. But uh, was, were you the two cool dudes? Were you two cool dudes? Oh, no. God, no. We certainly weren't. Well, I mean, put it this way. Um, yeah, we were pretty much, well, after high school, we were both virgins. Um, Andy, you know, kept that going for a long, long longer than I did. But um, we, yeah, we had crushes left, right and centre that we, you know, that we had on, on, on girls and whatnot. But um, we just, we felt that we were, we were nerds. We, we felt that um, we just weren't really cool at all <laughs> not at all <laughs> so that's it I mean Phil was a year a year below us although I spent a year with him um, I repeated yeah, in HSE or year 12 um, but yeah no look I think we were pretty much I don't, I don't remember feeling cool in any way shape or form <laughs> enter now the third piece of the Fove's puzzle one Philip Daniel Leonard a recent arrival to the Mornington Peninsula. He entered Mount Eliza High School a year below both Jack and Coxie. Coxie overheard this young Turk throwing shade on his bowling ability. 
I reckon the first time I met him. <laughs> I'm a good bowler, I was saying. <laughs> no, no, no. What he was saying. There you go. I'm a good bowler. He was, um, I overheard him talking to Tim Woods, saying that Tim Woods was a better wrist spinner than me. Huh? Which yeah. is probably accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but I reckon the first time I ever saw Doctor was, I got voted house captain of, I think out the house was Manyang. Well, I got joke voted house captain, <laughs> and I remember you came to our, you come to our school. I didn't have yeah, so first I ever saw him was at um, Man Young House. Man Young, what a name! Man Young Gallery. Well, there were four houses at Mount Eliza High, and one of them it was like it was something to do with school sports. Yeah, yeah, swimming. I think. Yeah, we were trying to wrestle up some swimmers. You were new to the school, and you'd been assigned to the. That house. I just had a sort of an aura about me. We were in a different year level, so um, we didn't really become mates until we were playing footy and cricket together. Phil was born in England, the son of an Australian medical student studying in UK at the time and a Swedish nurse. The family had settled in Eltham, in Melbourne's northern outskirts. Phil, like Coxie and Jack, was also a big brother to a younger brother and sister. In Year 9, the Leonard family moved to Mount Eliza. Yeah, so tell me, you moved moved from Eltham to Mount Eliza in Year 9. Was that because of your dad's practice he moved down there, or what was the reason for the move? Um, geez. Look, I think, um, I think dad, what, I think, yeah, I think he saw uh, just a move down to the beach from the, from the country, really, because Eltham was quite, quite out in the country at the time. And, um, yeah, he just, just decided to have a bit of a change. I don't think he, I don't think he particularly moved his practice. He might have been in Dad, you know, at the time, but um, yeah, might have bit, might have got him a bit closer. But no, there was no real. Um, yeah, I think it was just just for a bit of a sea change. I had plenty of friends, and it was I, I enjoyed Eltham. Eltham was a nice place to grow up. But yeah, look, at the, the, we went down and looked at this house, which was in Mount Eliza, which on the peninsula, which was fantastic, and was just just suggested to us to get that we would go down and it was like oh well why, why not so um and the peninsula is certainly a very nice place to grow up as well so yeah was Eltham still a bit hippie-ish back then or is that had that sort of faded by the time you um look it had a sort of mud brick vibe a little bit it had the um what else did it, have? it sort of had yeah some potters pottery sort of people out in the hills there and um but no it was pretty it was pretty suburban really at, at its heart, but it was there was surrounded by bush, and the further you went out to Kangaroo Ground and Panton Hill, it was quite country. So yeah, no, look, it was beautiful. Coxie's announced on microphone. Your dad was a psycho. Is a psycho? He's a psychiatrist still. Right. Yeah, seventy five, still working full time. Right. A Jungian or or another one? More of a Freudian. Yeah, Freudian, probably. Yeah. But that's, I think they've moved on from that sort of. <laughs> yeah, <a> <laughs> Did he, has he ever offered to psychoanalyze Coxie's oh, yeah. or... <laughs> I think Put no. it to him. <laughs> While there were a few musicians in the Leonard family, none in Phil's generation had taken an instrument up. My um, yeah, my dad played uh, clarinet. And um, mm. so he he didn't play it very well, but his his dad was a very good um, pianist, and he was a a principal and very very good accomplished musician. So 
By all accounts, Phil settled into Mount Eliza High easily. He immediately fell in with the cool crowd, even meeting the girl that would become his lifelong partner. Many books have been written about how Paul McCartney, John Lennon, Foster McLennan met. So how did our Glimmer Twins meet each other? We played we played cricket and footy together, so yeah. Look, we just we hit it up over um, things like uh, the Hoodoo Gurus' uh, first records, Arnold Romeo's, and things like that. And um, yeah, so we would just talk about those sorts of things at footy at footy training or cricket training, and it just it became clear that we had a sort of shared sort of sense of humour, and you know, we just enjoyed each other's company from the from the very very get go there. So. Yeah, we were in different year levels, but yeah, we played footy and cricket together. And um, but so in those sort of, you know, footy and cricket's a very blokey sort of environment. But we both had an interest in sort of music and books and stuff. So we just sort of really connected, I suppose, in, in an environment where that stuff wasn't really wasn't anybody else really into that sort of stuff. Phil was the last of the group to pick up an instrument. What were his early childhood influences then? The first, because I was a sort of um, top 40 guy. Yeah, yeah. Like I was just into tape and the radio and 3XY in those days and watching Countdown and getting all my stuff from that sort of stuff. But my first record that I remember buying was actually Billy Joel's uh, Songs in the Attic. But the great thing about that was that um, I was listening, because you'd go into a record shop and you'd listen to, listen to it and then you'd go and buy it. So, but the, the guy put, I was also listening to um, Devo's um, Freedom of Choice. What was that record called? Was it called Freedom of Choice? That's a single, isn't it? That's a single on it, What's yeah. Being cool? I can't remember what that record was called, but anyway, that, that record got slipped by mistake into the Billy Joel record. Okay. <laughs> so I took the, the Devo home, yep. then I was able to put that on cassette, which was awesome, and then I took that back and said, oh, you've made a mistake, so I ended up with both, both records, which um, with Billy Joel and Devo kind of, you know, kind yeah. of sums up what, where I, you know... Has, where I'm sort of coming from, really, is pop yeah, songs yeah, with a nice. sort of uh, yeah. qu- bit of a quirky bent. So. Yeah, that pops all over. <laughs> yeah, Enter now the final piece of the Fove's puzzle, drummer and percussionist Adam Newey, one year below Phil. Yeah, when did you first pick up the drums? 84, does that sound about right, 85? Oh, geez, I'm putting a year on it. I reckon that's probably about right. Yeah, that's probably what would I have been about... Probably about 15, 14 or 15, I reckon I would have been. So, yeah, about about 83. Were you, were you pushed in that direction? Or you always wanted to learn drums? No, nah, just, I just always I just always like banging things. Like, I used to <laughs> bang pots and pans in the kitchen when I was a kid. I just, I just loved it. And then I went to school, went to high school as a drum kit, and they let me take that home on weekends and bash that. And I saved up and bought a, got a, went hard with folks in a Pearl Export. Ooh. And I played in my first band, Paradox, mm-hmm. um, with, with a few other guys, which was a complete mishmash of stuff because mm. Louis Chiaro, the singer, was like this sort of Italian guy who liked sort of dancey sort of Valare. music. Yeah. Well, he was more... Actually, I played in his parents' uh, Italian dance band, actually, and that was Valare sort of stuff. Oh, right. Um, but yeah, and the other guys were total metalheads, so we'd be playing like Funky Town, the pseudo echo version, and then Rock of the Ancient Mariner by Iron Maiden. So it was an interesting, um, interesting hybrid. Yeah. yeah. Did so. you have any direct drum heroes? Uh, yeah. You on the virtuosic I, side, or is it all just two and four? No, no. I love. Um, well, when I was learning, I loved um, Stuart Copeland. I've always oh, loved yeah. Police, oh, wow. and I love. Um, 
I loved Rob Hurst too at the time when he's much more of a straight ahead sort of drummer. I liked sort of um, I liked a few metal drummers. I liked Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden. I used to listen to him a lot. Um, they're probably they're probably the main ones. Those mm-hmm. guys, yeah. Anything on the jazz end of end of things? Um, Jeff Watt, Jeff Tame Watts used to play with uh, Winton Marsalis. I used to like him. Mm-hmm. And but no, not not so much. I mean, I do like I do listen to a lot of jazz, but not necessarily for the drumming. I mean, Art Blakey's obviously a fantastic drummer, but um, yeah, who else? Oh, um, what's his name? In Ro- in Romantic Wild Return to Forever, Tony Tony Williams. Tony Williams. Tony Williams. Yeah, I love that guy too. He's awesome. A bit Steve Gadd. A bit Steve Gadd. Ted, wow. Ted's my Ted's really pushed me into Steve Gadd direction, which is a good direction to go. Okay, how long did Paradox sort of last? A year or two? Or? Yeah. About two two years, I think, in high school, and um, we did um, we did a gig with I'm Talking and No Nonsense down at mm. Frankston Footy Oval. Yep, and uh, that was probably the high water mark. We came runner up in the Victorian high school battle of the bands, where we got like a sort of Ibanez Steve Vai sort of copy guitar, <laughs> which we which we traded in at Guitar Village, and I think I got a China type symbol. Oh, yeah. Very very eighties. <laughs> probably what we and the other guys got a couple of pedals each or something. <laughs> And then, yeah, then I, I think by the time I was in um, HSC, didn't really play anymore with them. Meanwhile, Jack was repeating HSC, or Year 12. This brought him into the same year level as Phil. Phil remembers Jack and he in that final year together. The last year, uh, Jack stood, uh, stayed down a year. Do you remember being you friendly-ish with him in the last year of school? Oh was- yeah, no, we were good good yeah. friends with Jack. Um, he was he did he play? Oh, no, he was just always a, always about, and he did come down into my year level. So um, so yeah, we got to know, I got to know him really, really well, and he was good friends with Andy. So and I, got, I became good friends with Andy in probably year. Year, year 11 or year 12? Probably year 12, yeah. After completing year 12 again, Jack sought a trade and commenced a carpentry and joiner apprenticeship at the end of 1985. A year at Melbourne Uni doing engineering. Huh? And, mechanical? Um, I, hmm? Mechanical? Like just broad oh, the first year was just introduction to engineering, but I hated that. So the next year, the doctor was a year below me at school. So when he'd finished HSC, that's when we decided to go around Australia for a year. The 1986 trip around Australia forms a foundational myth of the band. More on this seminal trip later. But first, a proto-schoolies in Malakuta. Do you remember going down to Malakuta? Oh, God, yeah, 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 yeah. Many, many, many. We went there many times and many... uh, Many happy memories there, a lot of fun. Memory, yeah, all sorts of shenanigans. Um, <laughs> but I'm think, just trying to think, 84 was when I did HSC with Andy. So it was, and then I think it was 85 was when I did HSC with Phil. Again, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think that, yeah, I think so. Eight, that 85 year was the first year we went to Malakuta and mm-hmm. um, I got Andy, so Andy came along. So there was a whole bunch of us, some from our year level and some, I was sort of the connection between the two. So yeah, right. I do remember. It was many. It was quite a few years we did that. After Phil did his HSC, him and some of his mates and me, I and Jack too, went down to Malakuta for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I think our friendship really sort of led forward on that Malakuta trip. 
And so the idea of a trip was hatched. But Coxie still had to endure his first year at uni studying engineering. So when you went on that when you went on that eighty six road tour, I mean you did know Andrew pretty well by that time. It wasn't like a baptism of fire in your friendship with Coxie. Yeah, we just we just sort of clicked to the point where we actually decided to go around around Australia together. So obviously, obviously, we knew each other reasonably well. I would think, but we certainly got to know each other very well going around Australia. Jack could not join Coxie and Phil because he was still completing his apprenticeship. The three still came together to play cricket, as Coxie recalls. So Jack came to footy and cricket really late, so he was pretty unco. Um, Shame for such a tall man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he... No, he wasn't, he wasn't a bad bowler. No, he was okay, yeah. He used to, like... He put it on a good length for you. He, didn't, he used to, like, facing him. But... Yeah, he was very dry. <laughs> That's how you probably... <laughs> Before Phil and Coxie set off on their trip around Australia... Coxie busied himself submitting demos to Larrikin Records. Yeah. yeah. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, what yeah. What was on that? Oh, just, just god-awful stuff. I, I, I hired a four-track from Guitar Village yep. one week, and I remember my... Um, and so I had to get it back on the Monday morning, and I remember my grandma was staying with us, and um, so she was in the... I was in my bedroom, and she was in the bedroom across the hall. And she liked to sleep with the door open. Mm-hmm. And, but I was really... I kept Shy. the night going and shutting the door and she'd open it again because I, I had to get this thing... So I was going... I went to like 3 or 4 in the morning before I had to bring the four-track back. Yeah. And um, just remember having this ongoing battle with my grandma, her opening the door and me shutting it because I didn't want her to hear me. Um, but yeah, I, look, I'd have to... I'd probably have got the tape somewhere, but... You would to, have the tape somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're the archivist. It, it was... I mean, we're talking like really... I mean, they would have got it at Larrick and just been stitches. The 1986 trip around Australia forms a foundational myth of the band. Just Doctor and Coxie on the road, every state but Tasmania. The trip was formative in their ambitions to be a band. 1986 was a different era, as Doctor recalls how they financed the trip and why he wanted to go in the first place. He'd already spent a year at doing um, uh, engineering, and he absolutely hated that, so he was completely depressed. And I, I think I'd suggested that we go on... Go, I'd just finished high school because I was a year behind him, and I, I wanted to have that sort of year off. And go. And so we just decided to go travelling together, which was, um, which was great fun. Dropped out of uh, engineering at that point, hadn't you? Or you were... Well, I deferred, but I knew I was never going back. Never back. Did you have any idea, vaguely, Doctor, what you were going to do, or no idea? I, I had booked in for an economics degree. Doctor <laughs> 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 Houston! By the time I got back, I was doing an arts degree. So. <laughs> oh, to this day, the dude still doesn't even know how to do online banking. So. <laughs> Can you imagine me doing an economics degree? It just does not make sense. And how did they finance the trip? Well, I went around Australia on the doll, so that meant oh, having right. to go to the CES at every... Whereas Coxie got, his, now, dad, Coxie got his uh, dad to 
filling the form to forge it. So uh, great days for the doll back then. Yeah. You just yeah. bailed your form in. And did not have to go yeah. to the office or anything. Yeah. It was brilliant. And yeah. compared to these days, like yeah. you'd actually be able to afford to live off it. Yeah, well, it was, I remember it was ninety-two dollars a week. Yeah, so it was okay. not a lot. Of money. No, we we learned a lot about being frugal. Yeah, and um, back then. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a great introduction to home economics, really. Yeah. for us. Um, yeah, petrol was. I remember we got to Bundaberg, and I think it was thirty something cents there, wasn't it? Yeah. So that. Oh yeah, yeah. That was thirty years ago now, but I think everywhere else it was around fifty, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we couldn't believe it. Yeah. How cheap it was. We were just pumping fists. And, we and I remember coming across the Malibu, and it was seventy-five cents. Oh. It was like this is just, this is killing us. <laughs> In addition to male bonding, a lot of time was spent on musical education. I would have introduced Coxie to Ultravox, and he would have introduced me to. <laughs> yeah. Neil Young, probably. <laughs> you know the song yeah. New Europeans? I thought, New yeah, yeah, yeah. All good stuff. Terrible oh. when you listen back to it now, but <laughs> at the time. Well, we got a lot out of it. Yeah. He was showing me, like, Neil Young, Bob Dylan. Rodriguez, did that get a play? Rodriguez was, was there, but I, I don't know. Did we have that before we went? I think we might have. Yeah, well, we had Cold Fact. Oh, no, we got that up. Didn't we get that up? No, no, we bought it. Climb up on my music. Oh, on vinyl up in Darwin. Ah. And tape, put it onto tape yeah. at your um, mum's friend's house. Yeah. Was there any hitchhiking involved? Or? No, it was just, in a, just in a car. Old XB 73, I think. Ford. Listen, yeah, there was just had a tape deck. And we just went literally at 80, 80k the whole way around. Didn't go, didn't go beyond that. We listened to a lot of music, a lot. Hunters and Collectors, that, that album, Human Frailty, was, was huge. And how did a guitar finally, epically, get into Doctor's hands? Bought a broken acoustic guitar. The neck was, I think it was 40 bucks. So it wouldn't stay in tune at all, but Coxie showed me a few chords. Did I write Cavalry? I tried to write something straight away. So it was like, once you know a couple of chords, then you've, then you've got a, you've got the basis for a song, haven't you? So couldn't play any instrument. He doubled it. He, he had some trumpet lessons at some point in time, but he couldn't. He never played, picked up a guitar before, or anything. and um, so the three of us were supposed to go around Australia together. But I got my apprenticeship, so I, I couldn't go, and um, so Andy and Phil went off. And they were gone, I can't remember now, it would have been seven, eight months, I can't remember. Um, but Andy basically taught Phil how to play the guitar as they were travelling. And by the time they got back, you know, Phil could, you know, play quite a number of chords, um, not exceptionally well, but, you know, well enough. And he'd started, he was, he'd started writing some songs, you know, and it was quite, quite good lyrically. So, yeah, so then that was like, OK, well, we've now got three members of a band. <laughs> Yeah. Tell me about that. So yeah. With a little dignity to spare. Oh, please, please, please come over here. And people on this beach don't sit that way. People on this beach don't sit that way. I am gonna run away. The band was sort of hatched as we were traveling around Australia, wasn't it? Yeah, we always we had plans for a long time, but we were never. It was sort of thing where it was Phil, me, and Jack, and we were never going to really. I don't think we we're ever going to get a drummer. Yeah. Um, 
But you know, so it was only when we had there was a party around at Phil's place and um, Phil's sister Christina, who was in the same year level as Adam, yep. pretty much forced us to say hello to him. This kid was Doug. Enter Adam Newey, the affable and social drummer. Adam had been in a band, Paradox, that had won second prize in the Victorian state final of the Battle of the Bands competition. Paradox had one day backed up I'm Talking at Frankston Football Ground. That, you know, that Adam, um, he, he was in a band, a couple bands before he joined us. Paradox, yeah. Paradox, that's right, yeah, yeah. Adam was like, well, he was a musician. We, me, Phil and I, we, we, we weren't, you know, we'd never played in a band before and, and everything else. And... and then when I went to uni, Phil's doctor's younger sister was a year below me mm-hmm. and she was at Menzies College living as I was. And then one day she came up and said, oh, um, my, my older brother and, uh, and his mate have got a band and they need a drummer. And I was like, oh, yeah. So she had her tw- 21st or 20th birthday party, and that's where I met Phil and Coxie. Yes, yes, that was Christina's. Yeah. It was Christina uh, had some sort of uh, party, or gathering, they call them now, whatever they call it. And Adam, Adam was there, and Adam was also, uh, he was in the same year level as Christina and also my brother, my younger brother. And they were actually, you know, they all knew each other. Um, and Adam was there, and uh, yeah, we, I can't remember how pistol stone or whatever we got, but we went down downstairs to, um, you know, it was like all the bedrooms in our house, two-storey house downstairs, it was always mouldy and always cold, and it was like these sort of cell-type rooms that they all lived in, you know. Um, it was just a badly built house. But, yeah, I remember we, 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 we did this um, demo tape. Yeah, I think we sat him down and said... Listen to this. We think they're, they're all all coxies at that stage. Yeah, yeah. We think they're pretty good. I think he remembers. That, us yeah, he remembers that. The, you saying that's the famous quote. Yeah, have a listen to this. We think it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> now, Doug would have just been out of high school, wouldn't he? Was that the year after he finished? If he was two years blue? Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, yeah. Probably would have been in his first year at uni. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, no, actually, so he wasn't in Christina's year level, was he? He just knew Christina at uni. Maybe. Mm, maybe. Anyway, yeah. But, um, Anders is your level, perhaps. Yeah. My other brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, how one fan wants to be a fly on that wall in 1988. Here's how Doug remembers it going down. The party was going on out in the garage or the car park, and these guys were just tucked, tucked away in Phil's bedroom. We ushered you into the bedroom, didn't we? Ushered me into the bedroom. So come in, your interview, your interview, the interview process is going to take place in here. The uh, tape went into the tape deck. <laughs> I could not have done, done that. This came on now. Flood. And... Um, I think the asylum. The asylum. Yeah. Anyway, we think it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> the rest is history. And what was Jack's estimation of the young drummer? My recollection, and I can see now, he had this buddy. He had such long, long, long hair, and he had this like hand-knitted tea cosy beanie, like a Bob Marley-type beanie thing on. He was a massive stoner. Um, and I remember him being really really liking it, really liking it. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get any sort of non-committal vibe or anything like that. I can't, I can't remember anything like that. What sort of party was it? Well, I didn't drink at all. Um, 
we just drank beer. Was it a memorable eighties party apart from that? Or was it a? Um, were you listening to in excess? Uh, I ironically, I can't remember what would. No, there was <laughs> it would have been in earnest if if anything. But um, it was a real just young teenagey sort of very tame affair, basically. So right. Yeah. Had you met Coxie before? Or, or no. The funny no. thing is, they were the older brothers of. Their younger brothers were in my year level, and I was mates with them. Okay. So I'd actually jammed with Matthew Cox years earlier, Coxie's younger brother, who borrowed Coxie's Marshall practice amp, (laughs) and I think it was five o'clock where he was like, oh, I've got to go home. My my brother's going to kill me if I don't get his amp back or whatever, basically, on time. And I think he knew how to play Message in a Bottle on the guitar, so we basically jammed Message in a Bottle for about three or four hours. Yeah. Drove everyone in my house completely insane. And Anders, Phil's younger brother, I was good mates with him too. And um, yeah, so it's sort of it. And, and Michael Dyer, Jack's younger brother, was in my year level as well. Didn't so much, wasn't so much mates with him. This is at Mount Eliza High. Yeah, Mount Eliza yeah, High. Yeah. yeah. So it was a funny thing that I ended up becoming mm. really good mates with the older brothers of my actual mates yeah. by playing in the band. So yeah. <laughs> so were you actually pre-warned that they were going to present you with a demo at this party, or you just nah, knew they were going to be there? No, nah, they they had the demo, and I remember the Phil's exact words. He said, "Yeah, well, this is our demo, and uh, anyway, we think it's pretty good." <laughs> and handed it over to me and said, there you go. So, so what, was, uh, what was on it again, if you can remember? Uh, I think there was... Oh, The Asylum, maybe? The huh? Asylum was definitely on it. Um, mm. Famine would have been on it, I reckon, maybe. And... Cavalry Fort? I don't think Cavalry Fort was on it, because I think we did that... I'm trying to remember what... It, maybe High Howe was on it. Okay. Um, yeah, anyway, that was there, there was a few songs on it, and... Were you sold straight away, or did you take it home? To I think thought it was about good it? because it was because because the paradox was so daggy. It was kind of refreshingly sort of indie, and um, yeah, I liked it. I thought it was good. I thought Coxie's voice was really interesting. I mean, he sings completely differently now because he knows how to sing, but he was so nasally back then. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, I thought it was interesting, you know. And Phil played trumpet then still too, so that was interesting as well. A bit of a hunters and collectors, collectors yeah. slash painters and dockers vibe. Pains and Dockers, one of Ted's favourite bands. <laughs> so you knew of Doctor and Coxie, mm. yeah. But what was your impression of Doctor? Was he uh, was he as cool? Did he have this magnetic personality? Did he have any sort of reputation at, at school? Well, naturally, all your mates' older brothers have a an air of mystique and superiority mm. about them, you know. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's always that. Phil um, Phil sort of has an economy with. Emotion. He's not the most effusive dude, and he wasn't then either. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that I didn't like him, but it was just... Um, and I remember talking to Coxie about it, I think, when we were... Because I, I had an instant rapport with Coxie, but um, but me and Coxie are a bit similar as, as personalities, and I was like, with Phil, it's like... Expand you know, on that. What do you mean? We're both a bit emotional, I are think. You? Yeah, and we sort of... Um, yeah, we're both we're both emotional. We laugh a lot, stuff like... We're, we Like, in the old days, back in the band, certainly me and Coxie would... Capable of having a huge row fight. Mm-hmm. Whereas Phil doesn't really fight with the other guys in the band as much, nor does Ted. Ted and Coxie have had some great blues over the years as well, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so. You well read, I guess. Well read, you both were undergraduate. What did you study at the time? I did English. English, yeah. yeah. Coxie, so, too, right? At Monash? Yeah, yeah, I think he did English as well. I think mm-hmm. Phil did too. He might have done English <laughs> and history or something. Or... But anyway, yeah, Phil, Phil's just a. He was just a more. Um, not shy, he's just sort of um, just more reserved, I guess. Doug's hero, Stuart Copeland, puts it this way. 
there's the scenario of the singer and the drummer in a band have kind of a bond because neither of us are really sure if we even are actual musicians. We were never going to be a band until we met Adam. Like, it never would have gone anywhere. Because, um, you guys already had a demo? But you had your demos. Yeah, but we had never a drummer. Like, we were not going to go find a drummer. If we hadn't met him, it never would have happened. At my party. Yeah, never would have happened. So did you leave did you leave there understood that you'd join the band or leave there thinking we'll have a jam mm-hmm. and they didn't even really know who was going to play what so I think at that stage Phil was playing trumpet and maybe he was going to play bass and Jack was going to be a guitarist okay and I had a mate um, at uni Steve Mullins who also was from Mount Lies but he went to Peninsula Ooh, um, and he was a bass player. And I said, well, I've got, a, I've got a guy who plays bass. Why don't I bring him? Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure why whatever happened, but Jack wasn't at the first rehearsal we had. I bought Steve, and I can't remember what happened, but I think Steve said, oh, no, I can't be fucked. I haven't got time to play in a band or something like that. And um, the next rehearsal we had after that then was um, then Jack, Jack rolled up and he played bass, and that was, that was it. On lead guitar for a few practices beforehand, before, and Doctor was on. Bass, is that right for a moment there? Oh, very, very briefly, yeah. It was um, that was well before that gig. Um, I seem to think it might have been. It was. I think the gig sort of came up reasonably quick. I think we might, we might have had like three months or something of of jamming together and and trying to put stuff together before that 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 gig. And you know, which is what incredibly stressful because you know we we're, were all very very nervous. Apart from Adam because he he played in bands before. We ne- we never stood up in front of anyone and you know showed our wares. It was uh, quite ner- quite nerve wracking. Whereas Dougie had performed drums backing up Kate Sobrano, and I'm yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, he, and, and he was like, I mean, his 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 jazz style of drumming was um, well, he didn't he could have played just a basic four four, and we would have thought it was a, was a duck's nuts. But yeah, looking back on it, and, and once we, we we all developed. As further as musicians and experiencing other drummers and other bands and everything else, you know, soon it became very apparent that how good um, he was. Well, he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's, uh, you know, arguably, don't tell me how I said this, but yeah, he's arguably, probably to this day, still one of the best, best drummers, I believe, um, in the country. Yeah. He's so self-effacing. When I interviewed him, he goes, look, I'm not really a musician. I just hang around with other musicians, i.e. Coxie and, and Phil. And I'm like, he's selling himself short. That's, that is that's the ax, absolute archetypal fove way. Self-deprecate. Um, and that's where you know, I just – it's very, very natural for them. It's, you know, whereas, you know, I'm a lot more excited about, you know, yeah. saying how – how exciting and how unique it is that we, we could do these things and how unique our songs were and everything else, and especially you yeah. know, going through it all. Whereas those those three were very much... I think Phil wasn't quite as much in early days, but um, Adam soon poisoned them all <laughs> to, to basically sort of uh, be very negative. And he was quite shy, so he would um, portray the negativity through his shyness, I felt. In 2021... Coxie told Rolling Stone magazine of the modest ambitions of the infant quartet. The first goal was really to sort of have four guys playing something that was vaguely in time. I mean, it was that primitive. It was really just about trying to make some music 
that sort of sounded like music. Coxie admits that the band likely attempted to rip off some of their influences, but ultimately had to forge their own sound, since they could barely work out the covers. Coxie, did you have the booking for the footy club show booked in your diary at that point in no, time? No, 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 no. No, no, no bookings until we were actually a band. But we only probably had um, six weeks of being a band before that we had that gig. Yeah, it wasn't much. Yeah. Who exactly suggested the gig? No one is certain. Who sources the gig at the footy club? You find it? You ask the guy... Well, we were playing footy there. Yep. So the actual details are hazy, but they were having a, a player's night... Players disco and band night. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So somebody who knows. We said we'd play. In the band played for that footy team, did they? Yeah, oh god yeah. Yeah, we all did. did. Oh well, sorry, Adam Adam doesn't have a sporting bone in his body. Although he wasn't a bad tennis. Nor do I. <laughs> um, he, Adam was just yeah, he was just musician through and through. Um, no, but so Phil Phil um, Coxie and I all played played footy um, for Mount Eliza. The band rehearsed at Coxie's dad's shed every Sunday. They procured their first gig at the footy club and felt the need to enlist a sound mixer to manage the PA they would hire from Guitar Village in Frankston. Enter Peter Caradus, a friend of Doug's from La Trobe University in Bandura. Peter recalls his first introduction to the band. Yeah, yeah. Look, we were we were living um, uh, at Menzies College at the Tribune, so we were um, we we were uh, living in residence there. So, so you know, we both both came from I suppose a fair way from um, from Bandura. So, you know, my my family was in uh, North Ringwood, and and uh, Adam was from from the peninsula. So, so we were living uh, you know in in residence there. So yeah, that's how we knew each other. We we're living on the same floor, so so we were just uh, you know friends from from uh, from college. Was he a partying dude? Was he a pretty cool dude in your estimation? <laughs> um, yeah, look, look, you know, we were we were all first year students there, so I think I think we all came with the the the, the, the impression that we got from <laughs> probably watching the young ones and from Animal House that you know uni was going to be this uh, big big party time. So yeah, so so he was certainly the uh, you know. In, in there for, for the, uh, the partying experience, for sure. Now, the urban myth is that you had one of those massive 80s-style computers in your room. Is there any truth to that? One of the ones that looks like yeah, yeah, real-to-real? There, there is. <laughs> <laughs> there is. Um, so, look, one of my mates at the time, he, you know, we, we were both doing computer science and Look, at, and, and, that, and that was a bit of a struggle actually, because like I was, I was doing a double science engineering degree, mm-hmm. um, and and a lot of my friends, you know, Adam included, were, were sort of you know doing arts degrees. So, so you know, I had like double the contact hours of those guys. So, um, but now look, one of my mates, he 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 knew of this place that got old computers for scrap and if you turned up there on certain days you know these these things would come for scrap and and they were still perfectly working and you'd buy them for for next to nothing and so i i i had this kind of old school computer in my in my room it was you know the and the idea was you know you refurbish them and sell them on um mm-hmm. it was hugely impractical and and so i had i had this big kind of computer and and also the big stereo as well so yeah. um it was um 
quite ridiculous. But um, yeah, the urban myth is true. <laughs> yeah, he had no ex- experience in sound whatsoever, but because he was in computers, we figured he'd be able to do sound. So um, he was he was learning on the job just as much as we were in terms of being a band. He had very little idea. To be it's the first time you saw all the boys on the gig at Manalaza Football Club. No, no, no rehearsals. So it was that was that was the first time. Yeah, and again, because because it was, you know, we were living in Bandura and then, you know, I didn't have a car. I was, I was 17 at the time, so I didn't even have my license. So, um, so yeah, the first time I met them was on the day of the gig. So, yeah, so I think, you know, I, I think I think Adam had, had said, yeah, you know, there's this gig coming on and, and um, you know, we – we don't have a clue. You, 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 we need someone to come and come and work out how the sound system works. So come along, and and it'll it'll be a good uh, it'll be a good party. So it was um, it was very much uh, you know come along for a good time. It'll be uh, we, we need someone to plug the wires in for us. Yeah, the theory was that if you're into technology, you're also into uh, audio audio engineering. <laughs> the footy gig took place on 23 July 1988 the same day that General Ni Win, effective ruler of Burma since 1962, resigned after massive pro-democracy protests. Top five songs in the US chart included In Excess's New Sensation and Cheap Trick by The Flame, later to be referenced in a Fove song. Top five songs in the UK included Nothing's Gonna Change My Love For You and Salt and Pepper's Push It. Closer to home, singles like Better Be Home Soon, The Age of Reason album, and singles by Daryl Braithway, As the Day Goes By and One Summer, would soon be released. Die Hard would enter cinemas in America, Roger Rabbit was soon to come out, I was five years old at the time, and was excited to see this new show on the ABC called Degrassi Junior High. For the entrance price of $5, footy club members could get to see Coxie's Band at a player's disco and band night, showing even at the inception of the band that people were not taking them seriously enough to give a name. So the crucial question, on the actual night, were you Coxie's band or were you the glow worms in your own mind, no matter what's said on the ticket? Um, we're probably neither, really. But... Yeah, I think we vaguely thought we were the glow worms, but I don't think we were convinced that that was the name going forward. I quite like the name. I don't think Adam cared for it too still, much. Still <laughs> actually, actually not bad in hindsight. Probably bit, better than the foe. It's a bit, bit poppy. We might have grown into a little bit tweaked. Yeah, yeah. Do you recall the name The Foves being fixed pretty watertight by then? That only recently, are we going to be the glowworms or not? I I think that, yeah, look, on that first gig at the, the Mount Eliza Frickney Club, um, the, the name certainly hadn't been fixed. And if I remember rightly, I think someone had... I'm not sure who had done a like a banner to put behind the stage that I think had glowworms on it, and um, but I don't think it got put up. I think that obviously there was still some kind of uncertainty about whether to commit to it or not. So I think on the night of that first gig, the, the band was more or less unnamed, really. Um, and I think 
I seem to remember being at um, kind of around the kitchen table the next day. I think I, I must I must have crashed the night at someone's place. Um, and then the next day there was a bit of a band meeting about the name, and and I think it was then on that next day that they um, um, went through all the options, and I think it was sort of settled on on the faves. So I think I think it was the next day that it kind of got locked in. Glowworms was already in the past when you joined them after that. No, 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 that was the name, and I think we all agreed that I think I said the Glowworms. That's really you're happy with that, and I think they were both like, oh no, no, no that's that's just <laughs> of course not. We're, we're 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 quite happy to get rid of no, that it's name good, or whatever. Lunatic free. And we were sitting down because <laughs> Phil was really into art, like he had Hieronymus Boss stickers on his guitar and stuff. Right. And um, we're sitting there at my place in Mount Eliza with, you know, I still live with my parents. And um, mm-hmm. I think my mum had some art books out. Phil was looking at them and it was like Foves and it was like translated as Wild Beasts. And that was that. Then we thought, that'll that's a cool name. Let's do that. Which was a terrible idea in hindsight because no one knows how to say it. We call it Faves. And Spell it. Yeah, yeah. Pronounce it. But, um, but anyway, yeah, that's how. That's I would how. assume that was Coxie's sort of uh, literate coming nah, up. No, I remember we were all sitting there. The whole band were all sitting there. And we come over and we were... The guys were there, and um, yeah, then we just that someone wow. said that, and um, that was that. So it might have been actually Coxie that chose it, but um, mm. that and Polydor never wanted you to change, or that was no, I don't think so. I think that was I don't, happy you to go don't get to change your band's name, it's a little like a boat, yeah, mm. good will be bad luck, mm. unless you cause you, you're called the glowworm, <laughs> or the endeavor. Were you a fan of the name when Dougie got it out of his? His mother's artwork book or whatever. Yeah, look, we we, we always we were, we were a very democratic band, so it was basic. We all had to agree on something. Um, there was no sort of wasn't a, a, a voting scenario. It was just basically we all agreed. Or, or so if one person didn't like something, then it, it wouldn't fly. Um, yeah. So you know, hence there'd be you know, lots of arguments. Um, <laughs> You know, one person, you know, three would think, "Guys, oh, a really really cool name," and, and one person would go, "Yeah, nah." Do you remember any other contenders for names, or is that too long ago? Did you have any suggestions? I don't know. I pretty well. I didn't come up with it. I can't remember what suggestions I would have had. I'm sure. Yeah, we all had. Well, I think we all went away and had to come up with a list of five or six or something, and we come back and, and then go through them. All. Yeah. Um, I I can't remember. I know we had the glowworms with our because we weren't called yes. the faves until till well, quite a well, certainly after the footy gig. Yeah, at the footy gig, you're still Coxie's disco band or something like that. Or Coxie's yeah, Coxie's band. Coxie's band, and then um, our a mutual mate of ours, um, Brad Monkford, uh, sort of self-designated himself as a, as our manager. And um, and, I, and I can't remember whether it was it was Coxie's band was on the tickets. I remember that. Yes. And I can't remember if we that night we you know we we, we called it we were called the, well, we called ourselves the Glowworms. Someone came up with the glowworms, whether it was Phil, I don't know, it was just this name, we were all just like, <laughs> oh, I mean, you've got, to, you've got to remember back then we were just like, what the hell are we doing, you know, what sort of sound are we and what, who are we and all, we just had no idea, we were just a you know, nervous bunch of amateurs. The band performed two hopeless sets with only one guitar amp and a trumpet. On Coxie's songs, Doctor played trumpet. When Doctor played guitar, Coxie danced or sang backing vocals. 
apparently the night was a fundraiser for an end of season trip, yeah? yeah. Did you go on it? Were you, no, you somebody it? stole all the takings. All the takings. Yeah. Would somebody at the footy club stole it. <laughs> Did you go on that trip or? No. Nah. Nah. It was a full house and they we had to play the set twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we, I think we played like maybe Wild Thing twice. We didn't play the whole set twice. Nah. I remember the sound, ch- we were sound checking during the day and it was pissing every single person at that football club off. Yeah, someone came in. Our, our coach, the coach at the club was Greg Lambert, ex South Melbourne player. And someone came in and was like, You fucking turn it down. Greg can't fucking hear himself think. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a song called Desire? You yeah. put it at some time a sub-Morrissey dirge ballad. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, it sounds about right. Because <laughs> you don't write personal songs at this stage, but you're doing Morrissey-type lyrics? Oh, yeah. It's sort of a all woe is me, just, yeah. Disaster songs. A lot of natural disaster songs. And a lot of natural disaster songs. Desire, I remember you put it into a, a different time signature, which had me flummoxed for ages. Yeah. I just couldn't play it even vaguely in time. What a stupid <laughs> idea. I'm going to get all fucking... Sting driven the bleed to blue turtles on this one. We did a sound check during the day, which annoyed the hell out of the whole football club because obviously it was, the loud yeah. noise was going out, on, and they just kept telling us to shut up. And... <laughs> so, yeah, ex South Melbourne player Greg Lambert, who was coaching Mount Eliza, he was sitting an emissary and constantly to tell us to shut up. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the guy who was looking after the money lost the money. I think it was 900 bucks. Wow. Yeah, so it was a full house. We would have raised good money for the footy club. But he either lost, he lost it or uh, <laughs> stole it, one of the two. Peter Caradus recalls a great atmosphere and even joining the band on stage for a song. The guy actually got up on stage with them and sang some of that on the first show, I think. And then... Um, yeah, it's Smith. And I think they did Hunters and Collectors song. I think they did Dog by Hunters and Collectors. Because I think Jack did some vocals on some of these as well. So Hunters and Collectors, so Smith, Hunters and Collectors. I think they did a Dylan song. I think it's called Buick Six. How does Doug recall the first gig? No, it was, no. Just, it was just a really fun night. It was a really great way to kick off a band because... Um, it really, like, it's, it's amazing, actually, because it was our first ever gig. No one knew any of the songs. We probably played, I think we played Wild Thing and a couple of other... Yeah, is that the cover or...? Cover of Wild Thing. The like only the cover tro- The Trot played. song. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, we used to... We did um, Gone, Daddy Gone by the Violent Femmes as well. Mm-hmm. We did a version of that. And we only had one guitar, that's right. So I think when we did Gone, Daddy Gone, Phil just danced on stage, basically. And there's video. If you can, if oh, you can imagine that. Yeah. You um, see the Go On Daddy Go On Dance. Yeah. It's, oh, wow. And we used to do Big Mouth by the Big Mouth Strikes Again by the Smiths as well. We oh. certainly played that at the Punters Club once, I reckon. Mm. Um, but no, it was, it was it, like it fucking went off, which was really bizarre. Like it was just, it was huge. And then mm. it was sort of funny. We had this great first gig and then it was real back to reality, like playing somewhere like here at three in the <laughs> afternoon with not a single person in a pub. Part of the, of the attraction was the fact that me, Coxie and Phil were in our new band um, <laughs> playing, so, and everyone knew us because we all played together. In fact, I think we even played that day in memory, or maybe not, I can't remember now. But... Well, yeah, well, how, how did the gig go from your memory? That in in, in Fove's Law, it went, it went down pretty well and um, everyone was cheering and so forth, but was, that, was there any accuracy in those reminiscences? 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think I think because everyone, you know, it, it, it was one of those environments where I suppose everyone knew each other. So so there was, you know, it was it was a very kind of uh, positive environment. Everyone knew each other, and and so it was very much a. Um, you know, very much a party vibe. So, so it was. You know, it, it certainly was pretty, um, pretty, pretty positive, and it was a pretty, um, pretty high energy sort of night as well. So, um, it was definitely a. Um, you know, it, it didn't. I suppose it didn't feel like the kind of the first gig. It sort of kind of went off really well, and 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 um, it. Um, you know, def- definitely had that, that good sort of good party vibe to it, for sure. We will hear in future episodes from Melbourne music journalist Jeff Jenkins as he encountered the band as they started to play around Collingwood and Fitzroy. Jeff here recalls the name of the band being somewhat of a liability. I just love this quote, that very first gig, which you'll, you'll be aware of, July 23, 1988, at the Mandalizer oh, yeah. Footy Club, and Coxie wrote mm-hmm. extensively about that first gig. But just that one line, there was no rider, we were underpaid, and no one got laid. It was a microcosm of an entire career. That's one of my favourite quotes in rock and roll, and uh, this sums up the foes. And a little-known bit of trivia, John, is that Ross Wilson's very first band, Australian legend Ross Wilson, he had a band when he was still at high school, Ross Hannaford on guitar, he was still at high school. They were called the foes. They decided that it's too obscure, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> and they renamed the band The Pink Finks, and they had a hit in Melbourne oh, yeah. with their cover of Louie Louie. Um, and then you you got to love about the Foves too, that even Coxie has said, a name so ludicrously and frustratingly mispronounced and misunderstood ever since. So I love that about that. They even stuffed up their, their own name and, and they were stuck with it. And I remember way back in the mid-90s, so I'd been a Foes fan for a number of years, but then obviously Polydor, and they became a bit of a priority at Polydor. They were trying to break them. And a record company rep at Polydor, not the great Dave Peacock, he was a big fan from, from the start, but another record company rep said to me, oh, you've got to come and see this band, The Forbes." <laughs> and I just thought, oh my God, you know, not even their record company knows their name. Have you ever thought about doing your 40th, 40th anniversary there? At the footy club? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in some ways that would be quite amusing, but um, no. <laughs> <laughs> the footy club hasn't changed in 40 years, so yeah. it'd be exactly it'd be the same. the same fucking dudes there. And, yeah. Is it nah. the same dudes still there, you reckon? Would they, would they be... I mean, you have someone like Ruggin who's still free the joint, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. They'd look like the same dudes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we need to go back there. <laughs> Was there an understanding after the gig that uh, you'd done okay? That Did you go to subsequent rehearsals to sort of fiddle around or you taken on board as the sound guy straight um, away? Yeah, look, pretty pretty much, I suppose. Um, y- you know, the, the, the setup of that night was pretty... Yeah, it was only a small room, so it was it was pretty much sort of a vocal PA, and and you know it was um, it was it was pretty straightforward, but it went well, and then and then I think I remember then I think the next gigs after that were I'm not sure the exact sequence, but the Pelican Bar at the Twenty First Century Nightclub oh. in Frankston. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was. Um, 
uh, again, sort of on the on the peninsula. But um, you know, um, you know, that was kind of the first sort of non, you know, the first sort of proper gig in some ways that that it was at a at a venue rather than that kind of at a at a function at the at the footy club. Did you catch the train down, or did someone swing up to bring you and Doug down, or? Because I understand Doug didn't have a car in those days, or did he? <laughs> uh, I think he did. He had he had a Volkswagen Beetle, um, and and it was always a bit of an irony at the time because you know that the, the, the drummer had a car that couldn't really fit his drum kit, <laughs> um, and 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 I hear that that's now a bit of a, a bit of a kind of a drummer meme, you know, that they almost deliberately ride mo- motorbikes or, or have cars that actually can't fit all their gear. <laughs> so. Um, so I think I think he had this Volkswagen Beetle at the time. So I think we I might have actually we might have gone down together. I think, or even just caught the train. I think it was pretty. Um, and, and then just kind of crashed the night somewhere. One month after the Footy Club gig, the band recorded their first demo tape as a group, replacing Coxie's earlier four-track effort. They tried to pass the tape onto radio. What sort of songs are you playing then? Just anything from the first uh, definitely, the, definitely those. So the stuff on the first EP we would have been playing, plus a couple of others like Famine. I've never heard of that. Is it just a Electricity Overhead, um, which Phil played sax on? I think it's the only song he's ever played sax on. Well, <laughs> no, no, all he did was um, it blur, blur these notes. That was a, so we did some demos at the guy who was the guitarist in Paradox, Par- in, in Paradox, my first band. He had a little studio in Mount Eliza. So we did some demos there. And Danny I think, Fab. Danny Fab, yeah. Danny, Dan, Danny Malcolm, I think, was his real right. name. But was that in a Photoshop or something? Or so, uh... No, this was um, – his dad was like a millionaire real estate developer. Oh. There's this huge mountain in um, – What's off Old Mornington Road? Off Old Mornington Road. Yeah. And um, they had Eliza. some huge guest bungalow and his dad was loaded, so he just bought him like a fucking desk and mics yeah. and all this sort of shit. It wasn't a bad sounding demo considering how young and naive everyone was. But um, Yeah, I, I remember recording Steroid Brothers there. Yeah, there you go. No, no, they came out really well, yeah. Some of those songs made it on to 22 Reasons probably. Some of that? Yeah, I'd need to look at the track listing of it to remind me. Um, well, one song made it on. Only one song really... Had a, a life beyond that, and that was High How, which obviously made it onto our first EP. So we demoed that. None of the other songs ever got released on anything. The Rapids, where did that, did that get recorded there? Mm. That's got second demo written all over yeah, it. Rather than the second Getting demo. a lot more complex in our arrangements by the second demo. I think I let it was like swoosh symbols. Resonant oh. buzz. <laughs> Fuzzles down the valley. Down the valley. Excruciating <laughs> <laughs> lyrics. From that first gig, did you establish your stage positions? 
like I guess as a left-handed guitarist, it's probably obvious you're singing most of the songs. You're going to be in the middle. Yeah. Well, as a star, I'm obviously going to be in the middle. Yeah. And did Jack ever have a live mic to sing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Low. Low, oh, yeah. <laughs> Excruciating lyrics are par for the course for a young band sowing their oats. Early in 1989, the band played at the Union Hotel on Chapel Street. The gig was recorded. Reportedly offers a fascinating insight into their formative years. On the first week, the band performed in suits with slicked hair and shiny shoes. The next week, they turned up in shorts and runners. Coxie saying, we were cynical and jaded well before our time. There's a videotape of a couple of nights we did at the Union Hotel, probably only three or four gigs later. Uh, that's the Gone Daddy Gone. Dagger Man, Dagger Man. Stuff, yeah. So there was just a fixed camera at the front of the stage, and we did two Saturday nights in a row there. And the first night we were all in suits. Yeah. And then second night we were obviously over that. And you only had one guitar. You had to swap between them and so the other person would just dance. Yeah, or do BVs. Yeah, we only had the one guitar, yeah. Well, no, we only, must have only had one amp because I had my um, CMAR. Oh, no. No JC120 at that point. No, just the one amp, yeah. The CMAR. Just the one amp. Remember, I left, I left it at the um, that place that's no longer there in Richmond. Um, oh, yeah, the bridge. Oh, the joint that's sort of near where you turn off onto the um, onto the Monash. Oh yeah, yeah, the the, the workman. What's it called? The waterside. Uh, the waterside. Oh, the, the, the riverside. The riverside. Yeah. That was our first ever show in the city. Yeah, yeah was the it just an old man's pub. Was that like a just a? Yeah, just no one well, was there. Yeah. I mean, it was Tuesday night. There was just nobody there. Oh, how like nobody. That gig. How would we have got that gig? Yeah, good point. I mean, I don't know if it was part of our walk around with the demo thing, yeah, we, but it was... We, we, we walked around with the fucking demos, and that was... Um, who were we supporting? Yeah, we were supporting, weren't we? Yeah. Oh, we were definitely supporting. Yeah. Pretty sure, but I think our, our next gig after the footy, footy show was um, was the bloody side in. I think it was Riverside Tavern. Oh, yes. Yeah, I got a... F- in Cremorne, yeah? Yeah, it's now parking. yes. It's burnt down. Yeah. It burnt down a while back, but um, not, when, not when we played. Although, you know, might as well have. But I th- for memory, I think that was our first gig uh, after the footy show. In the big smoke. Yes. But, you know, it was too... Basically, the, our, the only punter was um, Coxie's brother, brother Sean. And, um, yeah, we, we... Was it? Yeah. Was it an old man's pub? From memory, it was, all, it was sort of like a, a bit of a bikey's pub, you know, bikey's old man. It was just, it was quite a good venue um, from memory. It had a raised stage and it was big and black and dark and I seem to remember it was like a, you know, almost like a mezzanine thing at the back back of it. It was all old and timber. It was very much a tavern, but it was quite, um, I think back in the day, there was quite a few bands used to play there. But I came, it was a Tuesday night or something. There was just no one there. But, I think, but I'm pretty sure we caught it, we had our name, The Foes, from, from that point. So between Coxie's band, The Glowworms, you know, and then we did our first sort of official gig, um, 
we became the Foves. But oh, I can't remember any other names, unfortunately. <laughs> Maybe Jack's band, no? Jack's band, yeah, no, I don't think, <laughs> don't think so. The band recalls many bad performances at the Royal Artillery, later known as the Art House, on Outer Elizabeth Street. They also had a residency at the Perseverance Hotel in Fitzroy. Peter Caradus recalls. The actual first city gig, most of them were around that kind of sort of Brunswick Street, um, Fitzroy area. Um, so, you know, I remember there was, um, we, there, there was a fairly early on, there was a bit of a residency at the Perseverance in, in, in Brunswick Street, which was um, kind of just a little back room. I don't think it even had much of a stage. I think it was just kind of one end of the room where the band would set up and play. So, so there, was, there was kind of a lot of those kind of smaller inner city pubs. Did Dougie try and get, you know, his uni friends to come along or did they bring anyone up from the footy club or anything like that? Were they well patroned gigs back then? Uh, it was it was a it was a bit of a bit of hit and miss to, to be honest. You know, I think um in in those early days, because, um, you know, I think I, I think sometimes the, the you know, um yeah, as as I said, they're often they're often midweek or they were often kind of um you know, with with other groups of bands, so so there'd be there'd be sometimes kind of uni friends and things like that. But um, there's plenty of gigs where it was just kind of girlfriends of the band, and that was about it. So um, uh, it, it would be hit and miss sometimes for sure. There was a gig I think at the Art House, or it was called the Royal Artillery. Do you remember that gig in North Melbourne? <laughs> yeah, I do. I remember. Yeah, I remember we played there a couple of times, and and. Um, yeah, it was a funny venue because it was. Um, I, th- I think one of the times we played, um, there was there'd been gigs there during the middle of the day, and I think they were playing ska or something. They were doing like ska bands, and so there was like when we were setting up for the sound check, there was all these all these skinheads hanging around, and and they didn't react well to what we were playing during the sound check. I think we were interrupting their um, their kind of games of pool in the in the front bar um so there was there was kind of um a bit of potential aggro from the skinheads while we were um while we were doing the sound check and um and actually that was one of the things that i remember jack was actually quite good at when there was those kind of tense situations he was quite good at diffusing some of those where yeah. it's um Whereas I think Andy, even though he was quite, you know, off the stage, quite a reserved person, he could sometimes be a little bit confrontational when he was on the stage and sometimes that didn't help in those sort of uh, situations. Interesting personalities, you know, pop, popped out during during that. You know Shred, yeah, their magazine, their little fanzine? Yeah. yeah. Um, Coxie mentions um, maybe what you're referring to, the Scar Bands, another part of it. Doctor was... Um, had a, a crisis, a nervous breakdown because one of the other trumpeters was apparently very good. <laughs> and then also Jack quitting. He've got how to play one song or something called the South Pole Expedition Disaster. <laughs> Sounds like a terrible song, but I don't know if you remember that one. I do remember that song. It was kind of a bit, bit of a ballad, I think. Yeah. A long one, a long ballad. <laughs> Maybe it just seemed like way. <laughs> I can't remember. Perseverance, is that the one in Fitzroy today? Yeah, 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 yeah. we did a, a, a month of Tuesday nights there. <laughs> and the Baden <laughs> Powell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Baden Powell's like a bit of a little yeah. small gastro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We played with, um, what was the band we played with there? Sea Stories? No, no. Uh, 
uh, oh no no um, with um, Dave O'Neill's band brother singing Dave O'Neill and okay. oh Captain Coco with Captain Bacon. Coco yeah yeah they were sort of a reggae sort of thing wasn't it oh they were more of, yeah Scar. jaunty bit, bit scarish yeah. yeah enter the stage young Dave O'Neill pre-comedy bass player of the group Captain Coco they came up to us at the Baden Pell Hotel, which is still there in Collingwood, and they asked for a gig, and they gave us a demo tape, which was quite common. Uh, because, you know, you get people asking you for gigs, but you don't want a grunge band or a swamp rock band playing with you because it's it's just a different, <laughs> you know, they had their own gigs. And um, and so we they had a bit of brass. One of them, I don't know if it was Cox who used to play the trumpet. One of them played the trumpet. Oh, doctor plays the trumpet. Doctor. The yeah, and so we, we and and and... I was talking to my brother Glenn about this, and we, they were—they kind of got grungier and rockier as they moved in their career. But initially, they were kind of art, a bit art pop, like art sort of art rock pop, Talking Heads kind of vibe. And so we really liked them. And because they went to a high school, we gave them their first gig at Thrash, supporting us. And then, um, and so Thrash was this. Uh, it was then called the Bridge Club on Bridge Road. It was like it must have been a former shop that was gutted and turned into a small nightclub, but an alternative nightclub. So you'd go on a Saturday night and the guy would play a Cure song and all the goths would get up and dance. And then they play they play a Smith song and all the shoegazer indie types would get up and dance, you know. So it, it wasn't like a – there was a whole lot of those sort of alternative nightclubs. And they would occasionally have bands on. And so we played and we got the foes to support us. And then – from that point on, they supported us quite a bit because I met, I found the book of our accounts, which I sent a photo to you of the Captain Coco yes. accounts. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we got paid like $300 and we'd always give the foes $50 to support us. <laughs> but I suppose back in those days, 50 bucks, that's enough petrol to get you to the gig. And, um, but yeah, I, well, here, a pack of cigarettes was like two bucks or less. Oh, and so. I just remember the foes being really friendly. And um, I remember Coxie was, yeah, he was a good front man because he was quite unusual and he was quite funny. And, he, you know, he'd make comments and talk to the crowd and stuff. And um, so we, we liked them immediately and we got on well with them. I remember the bass player was in the Navy, Jack. He was in the Navy for a bit. Was he? He's definitely done Sydney to Hobart boat races a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember him telling me he was in the Navy. I was like, wow. Interviewed Dave O'Neill and he he swears that you mentioned once that you were thinking about joining the Navy. Is that is that bullshit? Is that him misremembering? No, what what he's probably confusing with is is that at that same time, so probably 87, 87 I think I started doing um, a lot of yacht racing, like um, ocean yacht racing, and, and I started doing Sydney Hobarts. So, and also I do all the, it was called the International Offshore Racing Series. So I sort of, I'd started my apprenticeship. I'd started this offshore racing pseudo career. Um, so that's probably where he's got that from. <laughs> I was never going to join any, join the Navy, that's for sure. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why we love the foes. Because the first question, you know, when you're 17 and 18, the first question you ask is, what school did you go to? 
<laughs> and it still we, hasn't changed in Melbourne. It hasn't changed in Melbourne. No, it's tragic. And uh, we love the foes because they went to Mount Eliza High, whereas a lot of the bands down there went to Peninsula Grammar or whatever. But these boys yeah. were, were government school, so we immediately helped them because of that. <laughs> tragic. Coxie remains the band's chief archivist, retaining countless posters and handbills, giving a fascinating glimpse into the band's first few years on the live circuit. You never did any gigs at the Eagle Bar, did you? We did, did actually. Try? Yeah, no, we did. And we also played... I think we supported someone in the fucking big hall there at the Student Union as well. I know the Angels played there once, but that's probably... Yeah, I saw Hunters and Collectors yeah. there. I've mm-hmm. seen... Um, the Hunters and Collectors played with the Saints, actually, when I saw them, I think. And we played down in the moat. That's right, we played a market. Oh, they had those market day gigs oh, down sweet. in the moat yeah. theatre. No video? <laughs> Hopefully not. And we played there. That's right. We played there with the Mad Turks from Istanbul, and um, later to become the ice cream ice hands. cream hands. Oh, yeah. Wow. So Barker's eggs. That's right. And yesterday the uh, builders' arms. Today's vegetables, Today. Barker's eggs, and us at the builders' arms at three o'clock on a yeah, Sunday. The earliest post. Was this the second gig? Where's that? Where's that venue? The builders' arms in Gertrude Street. Oh, Fitz- okay. Collingwood yeah, yeah. Fitzroy, which yeah. is now a trendy gastro pub mm-hmm. run by Andrew McConnell. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. But in those days. Um, and the guy that ran it was this junkie guy, Dougal, who lived across the road, and there's still at these terraces with these sort of underground sections. Mm-hmm. And we sort of went over there to um, get our 50 bucks or whatever it was, or we had to get <laughs> the key to the PA or something, I can't remember. And it was a total junkie den, basically. <laughs> and we went and played this, this gig in front of fucking no one, because uh, we had to get off by six because the topless barmaids and the strippers were on after us. <laughs> Um, but, yeah, he also booked the Punters Club, though. All oh, right. And, that's, and then he turned around after that gig there and he said, do you want to support Chris Wilson at oh, the Punters? Wow. So that was sort of the really... Because oh, yeah. what we'd done is we, we just didn't know what the fuck we were doing. So we're going around with, like, demo tapes to, like, EMI and shit. Like, yeah. you know, like, that's going to fucking work. And, um, you know, going around dropping demo tapes at pubs and all this mm. sort of stuff, the stuff you thought you, you were supposed to do. Yeah. And um, playing to fucking no one here and there. And then um, that gig at the Punters Club was sort of like the first gig we played where we sort of fit the bill, so to speak. It was, mm-hmm. a bit, it was sort of the right-size room. There was people there. Um, yeah, it was probably just... That was probably that little transition to... You know, and after we played there with Chris Wilson and we got a few other support gigs here and there and that sort of kicked things along mm-hmm. a bit rather than just being complete unknown fucking losers going around with a fucking demo tape cassette yeah we did the Chris Wilson support and yeah that was sort of we were sort of I mean I wouldn't say we were off but we've sort of started to learn the ropes of where we're going to go so there it is the first episode of Foves are the best people a podcast exclusively devoted to the Foves reviewing all 350-odd songs and albums they have released to date. We hope you enjoyed the show. The next episode will be a documentary on the making of This Mood Has Passed, their first EP. If you want to go to fovespodcast.com, you can leave comments. You can also submit reviews or audio clips of your favourite songs or funniest moments you recall of the Foves. We'd love to incorporate them on the show. 
we hope we haven't misrepresented history. So if you have any corrections you'd like to mail in, that would be greatly appreciated. And I hope the reaction to this podcast will be one of support. But um, I think I hear some people now. Bad out! Show some respect, you pieces of shit! Shut up! So until next time, keep fovum. Coxie Doctor, Doug and Ted, JD on the Tarago.